The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord, Genesis 46 through 47, 12. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel cried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his son's son with him, his daughters and his son's daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Kamri, the sons of Simeon, Jamil, Jamin, Ohan, Achian, Zavhar, and Saul, the son of Canaanite women, the sons of Levi, Jeshon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Simron, the sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elad, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padaram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Zivion, Gigi, Shimon, Esban, Eri, Eradai, Arali, the sons of Asher, Amana, Ishva, Izvi, Berah, and Sarah, his sister, and the sons of Berah, Heber, and Malachal. These are the sons of Zelpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Gammon, Ali, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Husham, the sons of Nephateri, Zareel, Gune, Zezer, Zelim. These are the sons of Bela, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you will still be alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. 
They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for our servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers, the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then so Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession of the land of, G- of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, Luann. If anybody needs some baby names, hopefully you got a lot of opportunities right there. A lot of options. Hummim and Pummim or whatever. I like that one. Sound like Muppets. It's a solid baby name. Um, welcome to Sacred City Church. First thing, let me just state the obvious. It's warm in here. I don't know why uh, the air conditioner is not kicking. Um, I will let you know that the city of Davenport owns this building. And then there you can make your own deductions. Um, but we're going to open up the windows, boys. We can crack the windows a little bit. Maybe it'll cool off a little bit. Hey, here's the thing. As a preacher, the worst thing to do is to preach to a congregation, a group of people, when it's about 75 to 80 degrees in a room. Okay, why? Because that's like nap time weather. So just make a covenant with me that if anyone falls asleep next to you, you will do something really obnoxious to them. Okay? I'm just letting you know. Draw something. Throw something at them. Spill your coffee on them. Whatever you need to do. Just keep them awake. Um, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City Church. I want to welcome you. Thank you for coming to our Sunday gathering where we gather together. We're missionaries um, spread across the cities throughout the week. And we gather together on Sunday to, to celebrate God and what he's done and who he is and how he's changed us and what he wants to do through us and in us here in the Quad Cities. Um, I want to have one quick announcement. This week is our second week, uh, 3 to 5 p.m. at the center. It's our second week for membership class. So um, I kind of fed some people with a, wa- with, a, with a fire hose last week. We're going to put some meat on those bones this week. We're going to make it a little more practical, let people understand kind of uh, the theology behind Sacred City, who we are, what are we all about. So if you want to find out more about us um, or you just want to look into membership, 3 o'clock at the center, 1411 Brady Street, we will see you there. Um, also, directly following this service, if you're a visitor... You'd like to ask some questions, maybe hear our story. There's going to be a visitor forum right next door in the cottage, right next door, directly following this service. Okay, give us about 15, 20 minutes to get things set up, and then we'll be right over there. So please, we invite you and we uh, welcome you to join us over there to hear our story. Um, Now let me go ahead and and pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we're not here just because we want to be here, but we're here because you have called us from all across the globe. Um, You've called us to gather around your great name, that Jesus Christ, the God man called a people to himself, redeemed from the world of certain people. Um, and we embrace you by faith that we thank you that we are that people, part of that people. We're part of that body. Um, and we gather around your name. So I ask that you would be glorified this morning, that your spirit would point us to Jesus, that Jesus, you would point us to the father, that you would anoint my mind to think your thoughts and to speak your words and that you'd anoint your people to hear with the ears of faith this morning and hearts that are soft to believe. Holy spirit, do what you want us to do. Let us learn um, from this kind of strange story in the book of Genesis. Let us learn what it means to be your people. Um, Let us see how you've moved and acted in history And um, let us respond to that God who shows his love like that. In Jesus' name, amen. So you're warm, I know. 
I guarantee you these spotlights, I'm a little warmer, okay? It's going to be a little sweaty for me today, I can tell. Are you guys ready to do some, uh, some kind of heavy lifting this morning? Because I hope so, because um, if you didn't, you know, a lot of people, this is kind of a game. They, come, they, read, they read ahead in the book of Genesis, then they come to service, and they're like, all right, let me see what Justin's going to say about this. I don't think he can do anything with this one. He's got a bunch of names. That's all we've got to deal with this week is a bunch of names, a bunch of people headed off into Egypt. What's he going to do? How's he going to pull this one out of the realm of boredom? Um, Well, actually, I don't have to do much work, honestly. This is a really interesting, a really uh, fascinating chapter, if you understand history. And uh, this morning, we're going to clear some things up for you today. But it's going to take all of your mental faculties being engaged. So I know the heat does not help in that regard. Um, And we don't give bulletins. You know, a lot of churches give bulletins and those are like automatic fans in your hand, right? We don't do that, so I apologize. Um, If you want to follow along with us, you can find our liturgy on YouVersion. We have a Sacred City app on your smartphone or your tablet. You can follow along on those ways. But um, today what we're going to discover, see so many people who call themselves Christians, they only understand the Bible in what we would determine, what we would call systematic ways. So maybe they've read a systematic theology. And what a systematic theology does is it takes the Bible and it kind of dissects the Bible in chunks. So it takes big chunks out of the Bible, like God, and then it gives you all of God, not all, but it gives you many of God's attributes. And it says, these are the attributes of God. So it takes a bunch of different scriptures and it systematizes what it says about God. And then it takes about systematize what it says about sin and what it says about faith and what it says about Jesus, what it says about the church. And many people understand the Bible only in terms of God, sin, faith, Jesus. So if you go to church, all you ever hear is you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, be saved. And then when you die, you're going to float off to some kind of heaven that looks a lot like a Hallmark card. And what are you going to do there? Well, I don't really know. Rock out on harps and, you know, really weird, floaty, angelic stuff. That's what you're going to do. But hey, I mean, it doesn't look that appetizing, but hey, the alternative is rather uh, demoralizing, right? Hell looks or heaven looks kind of boring, but hell looks really hot and it's hot in here, but nothing like hell. Right. So I think I'll choose heaven. And that's the only way people understand Christianity. Many times in this culture, if you talk to someone about Christianity, they think of it in these categories, God, sin, faith, and Jesus. And those categories are true, but they're minimal. They're a very minimalistic way of understanding the gospel. And, and, The Bible, God did not thank God in heaven. He did not send us a systematic theology textbook. Okay? Our elders, the men right now who are going through the eldership process, they're not elders yet, but they're in a year-long process to become elders, we're reading a systematic theology book. And none of them come to me and go, oh my goodness, I could not put this down this week. Right? It's like reading a dictionary. Nobody opens up a dictionary and goes, this is just thrilling. They should make a movie out of this, right? Nobody says that. But thankfully, God does not give us his good news, his gospel, his story in those ways. When God gave us his gospel, he gave it to us as a story, as a real story. He gave it to us in the real world of history, And most evangelicals or modern day Christians, they don't understand the story of salvation. They don't understand their roots of the faith. They don't understand what the nation of Israel and what the Old Testament has to do with being a Christian. Many, I've heard many Christians say, don't read the Old Testament. That's not for us. Don't read the Old Testament. No, 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 no. You miss out on so much of the richness of our faith, the very foundation of our faith, if you don't understand the Old Testament. And at at Sacred City, we've been going verse by verse through the entire book of Genesis. We don't do anything fancy, just plodding away verse by verse to the book of Genesis. And I hope that that mindset, if you had that mindset coming into it, that mindset is being reversed or being chipped away at as you're seeing the gospel and literally the foundation or the the gospel in its embryonic state in the book of Genesis as it's going to flourish throughout the rest of the Bible. So today, we're going to clear that up. We're going to talk about that today. See, Christianity is unlike many, most 
of the world religions. In that God's revelation of himself doesn't come, listen, this might confuse you, doesn't come to us straight down out of heaven. See, many of the world's religion, you're meant to go out to a desert or go out to some place and you're meant to pray and you're meant to meditate and you're meant to go in, you're meant to dream, you're meant to go in and kind of find your peace with God. You're meant to, to pray and seek and, and find somewhere out there you can have this direct connection with God and you're meant to go out and find that thing. That's how God reveals himself. He reveals himself to each individual person personally. Many of the world's religions are like that. But in Christianity, God has revealed himself to a particular group of people. And they have, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, he's written down, they've written down their accounts and passed them on to us in the scriptures. Okay, 66 books of sacred scripture. And we have been studying this first book of these scriptures, the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings and traces for us the history of the people of God. We have, been st- we, have been, we have seen and studied so far that this one eternal God who existed above and beyond and before any and all things existed in himself in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God was eternally happy. He didn't need anything else. He had the love of the Son. He had the love of the Spirit. And they existed in this co-equal, eternal love triangle, to say. All right? This happy essence of the Trinity. And God created everything out of this happiness. He didn't create it for happiness. He didn't say, man, I'm really bored. I need some people to manage. And he created us. Right? He didn't do that. He was so happy in himself that he created the world and everything to share his happiness and to share his wonder and to share his glory. But with the creation of man, mankind did what we do best and he turned on God and he sought, he sought out an identity that was separate from God. Instead of saying God is eternal and God is awesome and God is above all and I think I could be God. I think I, I want some of what he's got. I want some of the power and the authority. I want some of that. So man sought out to rebel against God. Man wanted more than God. I think this is very similar to where we are today. See, man wanted to be God. But God showing his patience and his mercy and his grace decided not to destroy mankind for the rebellion. No, instead he chose to rescue them. And redeem them. It's so funny. My kids, when we go on vacation and they build sandcastles, if you ever see the, the, you know, those, the plastic containers and they shove the sand in them and they turn them upside down and, you know, you have to get them just right, get it wet and everything. You turn them upside down and you pull it up and there's a little sandcastle, right? Well, my kids, they, they've never done it before. So they're pushing all this dry sand in there. They don't know what to do. They flip it over. They pick it up and it just, just this nasty little pile. And my daughter goes, it's broke. And just kicks it. Right? Now listen. That's what I would have done to mankind. Right? You make them to glorify God. You make them in perfection. You make them to be obedient. And they just don't turn out right. Right? What do you do? Boom. You kick it. You're done with it. It's broke. That's not what our God did. That's not what our great God did. Our great God, he chose instead to redeem mankind and to go to work with a very detailed and nuanced and long-term plan, a rescue plan. And we see this as early as Genesis 3.15, that God promises to send a man to fix humanity. And then with humanity, the whole of creation. See, our forefathers screwed everything up, but God promised in Genesis 3.15, he would work out a detailed plan to fix everything. Not just humanity, not just salvation. See, those of us with this systematic idea of God, sin, faith, Jesus, we only see the Bible and salvation in terms of personal relationship or personal salvation that God just wants to save souls. God does want to save souls. God does want to redeem people, but he's got a bigger plan and a bigger scope for that. Once he saves you, you get to partner with him in the renewal and the redemption of all things, cultures, 
the earth, everything is getting renewed. And you see that in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where heaven actually comes down to earth and we get this new earth to inhabit. We get this new glorified and redeemed and restored earth to call our own at the end of time for all eternity. So Genesis, then as it progressed on, remember, it showed us just how messed up things were. That God actually looked down and and what happens is death enters the world because of sin. And with it comes murder, comes rape, comes idolatry, comes polygamy and genocide. The reason we turn on our news every single night and we're bombarded with horrific things happening in our world is because of sin. The presence of evil, the presence of sin in our world, the creation has fractured. And because of that, God, he looks down and he, this is what he says about man. There is nothing good in them. There is nothing but wickedness. There is nothing but evil. They are hell bent on disobeying me at every chance they get. And what God does in the book of Genesis several different times is he kills a lot of people for their rebellion and their wickedness. But then he did something See, every time, some, sometimes our culture, we get, oh, God killed people, right? We get shocked at that when the opposite should be true. My daughter, when she kicks the sandcastle because it's not a sandcastle, she tried to make it, it did, you know, it, it doesn't represent what it's supposed to represent. Nobody's shocked that she kicks the castle. It doesn't represent what it's supposed to represent. When God destroys mankind, he does it because they're not representing what they're supposed to represent. They're rebelling from God. And we should not be surprised that he wipes them off the face of the earth. We should be surprised as what he does ne- at what he does next. See, even though God looking down on mankind saw that there was nothing but wickedness in the heart of man. And that mankind was hell bent on rebelling against him. He did the unthinkable He chose a man. This is, if you like systematic stuff, this is the biblical doctrine of election. Out of all the unbelievers on the planet, God chose one. He has that right. Scripture says he is in heaven and he does all that he wishes. That God chose this unbeliever named Abraham. God chose Abraham, probably the most influential man that has ever walked this earth other than Jesus. God chose this man, Abraham, to unveil himself to, to reveal himself to. God chose Abraham and said, from you, Abraham, I am going to make a great nation. Now, this should be shocking to us. This is like God showing up to someone in Mount Joy, right? Someone in Mount Joy, and he goes, hey, man, from you, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, right? And Bill Gates is not living in Mount Joy, right? We're not talking about, you know, Silicon Valley, like the premier places to live where all the influential live. We're talking about going somewhere that's just, you know, out of the way. God chooses a man and he says, you, I will make into a great nation. Abraham then responds in faith. He obeyed God and did what God told him to do. He was not perfect. (laughs) You can go back and listen to some old sermons if you want to hear how jacked up Abraham was. He was still a sinner. He sold his wife off a few times. He pimped her out. It was really bad. But scripture still says he was a man of faith and he put his trust in God. And then God blessed Abraham. And what did he do? At his old age, when he was worn out and his wife was barren, God gave Abraham a son, Isaac. And God's promise to make Abraham into this great nation that would bless the whole world, that promise then passed on to Isaac. See, God had a special relationship with Isaac. And then guess what happened? Isaac had sons. And God chose one of those sons before, when they were in their womb, before they'd even had a chance to prove themselves, before they even had a chance to prove if they're good or bad or disobedient or men of faith or men of wickedness, God says, I will choose one and I will reject the other in the womb. And God chose out of those sons one, which he would again have a special relationship. And that man was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. One of the sons was Joseph. We've been studying the life of Joseph for the past few weeks. 
But what we're going to see today is that promise that went from Abraham to Isaac has now gone to Jacob. And God has now fulfilled that promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these men, if you, if you, if you ever heard this term, are often called the patriarchs. They're the fathers, the founding fathers of the Jewish, Islamic, and Christian faith. And so today, what we're going to see in this chapter 46 is we're going to see the beginnings of the nation of Israel. We've all heard of this nation of Israel. We've heard of this Jewish people. We're going to see where they came from and what they have to do with Christianity. We're going to see this Israel taking shape. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 46. We're not going to go verse by verse through the entire thing this week. We're really going to look at the first few, and then I'm going to talk about kind of the theme of Israel here. Verse 1. So Israel, that is Jacob, okay? Jacob had this encounter with God where he struggled and wrestled with Jesus, and, and Jesus changed his name to Israel, okay? This is, the, this is the people, this is the Jewish nation here. This is the people of Israel. This is where they get their name from. So Israel took his journey... Let me just stop right here and give you a little backstory. The whole world is in a famine. And Jacob or Israel's son, Joseph, has been sold off by his brothers into slavery, into Egypt. God has, ex- God has humbled him and then God has exalted him. Now he's prime minister of Egypt. And the whole world is having to come to Joseph to buy food and buy grain. Joseph has worked out this giant scheme and ploy to bring his brothers to repentance. His brothers come. They repent. He says, go back and get your dad. All right, the brothers now go back to Jacob. And if you remember in the book of Genesis, the land is very important, correct? The land has been a very dominant theme. God has said, I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to do that in the land of Canaan. It's a promised land. The nation of Israel is really small. A lot of fighting going on all the time. They're, I mean, it's, it's smaller than most of our states in the United States. Um, but there's, they're in the news all the time. Why? Because there's a lot of fighting. Why? Because they, they're passionate about the land. They believe that God gave them this land for them. So there's a lot of fighting going on in and around that. Okay, so the land is very dominant theme. Jacob and his sons have been living in the land of promise, and now, a, now a, a famine has them out. Joseph is ruling in Egypt; all the foods in Egypt, and he says, "Go get my dad, bring him up here." He hasn't seen him in twenty-two years. And that's where we are right now. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, same place that Abraham and Isaac offered sacrifices to God and worshipped God, and, and offered sacrifice to the God of, the fa- of his father Isaac. So it's on the far southern part of the promised land. He's leaving past Beersheba is desert. Past, this is like Death Valley. Before you enter Death Valley, you better stop at the last gas station, right? Or you are in trouble. If you wind up, run out of gas there. So he stops in Beersheba. He worships God. He offers sacrifices. He asks God for his blessing. Now listen, why would he ask God for his blessing? Over and over in the book of Genesis, men have gotten trouble when they went places they weren't supposed to go. God says, go to the promised land, stay in the promised land. Well now, Jacob does not want to be leaving the promised land just because of famine. That's like weakness. That's like disobedience. That's like, I'm scared. I'm in fear. So I'm going to leave and make this bad decision out of fear. He wants to make sure that God has his blessing upon him to go to the land of Egypt. Verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. It means uh, the right of the firstborn was to close the eyes of their father on death. Still Hebrew tradition today. And Joseph, even though he was not the firstborn, but he was his favorite, he would have the right and the, to close the eyes of his father. So, Jacob worships God, makes a sacrifice, and God speaks to him. Now listen, this is really significant because God has not spoken to Jacob in over 20 years. And, and, and this is kind of common for us today. People kind of fall into two categories. Number one, they, they're more deistic and they think that God never speaks to people. 
Okay, God is silent and he never speaks to people and we're just out here on our own. Or people are kind of uh, overly charismatic and they think that Jesus just speaks to us all the time. Right? Those people kind of freak me out. Or I see them talking to themselves as they walk down the detergent aisle at Walmart. Lord, what do you want? All or all? Like, he's not picking out your detergent, okay? He's like a chatty teenage girl or something. That's not God. God speaks, but he, he, he doesn't just waste his words. Now, today we have the word of God, and God always speaks through his word, thankfully. But at that time, they didn't have it. So God had not spoken to Jacob or Israel in over 20 years. And now God speaks to him. And listen to this. This is the last time God will speak to his people for 400 years. He's kind of an introvert sometimes. I kind of like this. I'm going to shut it off for 400 years. I'm exhausted. He's not exhausted. I'm just joking, but I find it funny. As an introvert, I find it funny. So I want you to think about this. These people, the Israelites, are on the edge of going into Egypt. God promises Jacob what he's always promised Jacob. I will be with you. Man, that's a great promise. You have my blessing to leave the promised land. And then he extends the promise that he made to Abraham, that he made to Isaac. He says, I am going to make you into a great nation. Somebody say great nation. Okay. God wants a nation. God, and that's not America. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just throw that out there. Okay. God wants a people for his own possession. A people who will worship him and who will live in such a way that other nations will know what God is like. But listen, God's nation building strategy is quite perplexing. If you can remember a few chapters ago, about 20 chapters ago, or 30 chapters ago, when he told Abraham that he was going to make his family into a great nation. This is what he said to Abraham. Okay, This was two generations ago. I'm going to remind you, this is what God says to Abraham. No, in, in, Genesis, in chapter 15, verses 13 to 14, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. See, God told Abraham two generations ago. And here we are in Genesis 46. God's people, Abraham's lineage is marching cart and horse into Egypt where they will spend the next 400 years in slavery. And Jacob's name, it's since been changed to Israel. And now Israel is leading as a new nation here, is leading in a new nation into Egypt. And if we go through verses 8 through 27, which Luann did, and I will not try to pronounce any of those names. What we see, the whole point is, the nation of Israel is how big? 70 people. 70 people. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. 70 people. This is the beginning of the Jewish people. 70 people marching into Egypt with all their livestock and belongings. This is not make-believe. This is not Hebrew lore or fantasy. It's not some kind of fairy tale. This is staunchly rooted in history. I want you to take a look. At this mural from inside an Egyptian tomb. It's dated at 19th century BC. This mural pictures Jacob or people like Jacob, Hebrews, uh, entering into Egypt. Go ahead and show the Adam Holdorf. He has disappeared. Somebody put the slide up there. Um, This mural depicts Jacob's family entering into Egypt. You can see they're bearded. Egyptians were not bearded. They're wearing clothes with elaborate designs. They're carrying weapons and musical instruments and they're shepherds. And we saw in this text that they detested shepherds. Okay, Shepherds were the lowest on the totem pole of society. This is on the inside of an Egyptian tomb. Okay, This is extra biblical, a source, an archaeological resource that kind of confirms that there was a mass uh, entrance into Egypt because of famine. 
All right? This is a historical fact that went on in the world. It's not just some, you know, people, oh, that's your faith. Or, that's just what you, this isn't like Peter Pan. Right? And heaven is never, never land. Our faith is rooted in historical realities. You can go ahead and take that off, buddy. This is how the nation of Israel entered into Egypt. 70 people strong, carrying everything they own, with old man Jacob in a wagon. He's too decrepit. He's 130 years old right now. He can't even walk. They're pulling him into Egypt. And wagons that were provided by Pharaoh. And now many of us are familiar with the Exodus. We've seen the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments. And we're, we're familiar with, with Moses standing up and t- declaring to Pharaoh. What did he say? Let my people go, right? Awesome story. Has anybody ever thought, how did they get there? 400 years in slavery. How did they get into, into Egypt? This is the prequel to the Ten Commandments. This is the prequel to the Prince of Egypt. This is the prequel to the book of Exodus where God raises up Moses and delivers his people. And like I said, God has an extremely peculiar way of creating a nation. Start them small and incubate them in another nation. Right? It's kind of an odd way to start a nation. So the Israelites go into Egypt as 70 people. And listen what happens. At the time of the Exodus, 400 years later, they come out of, as a nation of several million people. They go in as 70. And they come out in Exodus as several million people. Today, there are 14 million Jews Alive on earth today. Before the Holocaust, where Hitler exterminated over 6 million of them, there were over 16 million. And they get their start right here, 70 people strong, marching into Egypt. Now, let me, let me ask you, is this how you would launch your project to save the world? Let's start with 70 people. Let's put them in a pagan nation under a political system that will become horribly oppressive and a leader who will eventually order all of their sons to be killed at birth. Yeah, let's start there. Let's, that'll get things going. I'm sure that'll go viral. But God does. See, this is the nation. This is the people group. This is the family from which, listen, this is the family from which Jesus will come from. The Son of God, the triumphant Savior of mankind is stemming and coming from this people group. We think, this is what our society thinks often, we think that God's people should have it made. That God's people should be the head and not the tail, blessed and not cursed, above and not beneath. That they should walk around like swaggering king's kids. They should live in luxury and have special privileges. They should be wealthy and healthy and bad things should be kept from them. But as we read the scriptures, we see just the opposite is the case. Think about this. Now, now this will flip your lid, okay? Should trip your trigger here. Let me just think about this. Genesis is being written by Moses. Moses is on the tail end of the Exodus. Moses is on the tail end of 400 years in slavery. He got to experience it and see the devastation. He's leading this several million people, people group. He's leading this nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. And he's telling them this story. Can you imagine Moses telling them this story of how they got their start? And Jacob, he's on the edge of the promised land. He's seeking God. Should I go into Egypt? Should I leave the promised land and enter into Egypt? And all the Hebrews that are on the tail in the exodus they're going no jacob don't do it it's gonna go bad for you we're gonna be in slavery for 400 years don't do it jacob and some of them are going jacob you are a moron this is where he loses it this is where jacob makes the biggest mistake of his life that's jacob he's making mistakes all through his life stealing stuff from his brother doing all i can't stand this jacob right i can imagine these hebrew people having these conversations and then Moses reads this scripture to him. Moses gets to this part. He's like, and Jacob is about to travel to Egypt. 
can you hear the crowd? No, Jacob, don't do it. Pharaoh's a psycho. That's how Exodus, Exodus starts. And a Pharaoh rose to power that did not like the Israelites. He saw how many they were. He saw how fast they multiplied, right? Be fruitful and multiply, right? God's people know how to make babies. And he saw that and he wanted to exterminate them. He wanted to enslave them. The people are like, no, don't do it. But Moses reads this and he says this. And then God said to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make a great nation out of you. It was God's will to lead these people into Egypt. It was God's will to lead them into slavery and persecution and difficulty. It was God's will to do it. Suffering was necessary. But here's the key. God would be with them. He would preserve them. He would watch over them. He would multiply them. He would make them into a great nation. And eventually he would raise up a man who would deliver them. Did he accomplish that? We have history on our side that we can say, yes, he did. He raised up Moses. He delivered them from Egyptian slavery. There's 14 million of them today. There is still a real nation of Israel. God has done this. But for the Christian... See, what do we need to see from this? What do we need to understand this? Listen, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But here's my point today. If we could see, now we can't, but I'm going to tell you. If we could see as God sees, if we could know as God knows, then we would always do as God says. If we could see as God sees, then we would do as God says. See, for the Christian who understands this story of salvation, the history of our faith, it should come as no surprise at all to us when we come to the gates of suffering and God beckons us to come in. If you haven't come to the gates of suffering, you will. You're just not old enough yet. Your body will break down. Relationships will get difficult. God will put you under a very difficult boss. He will put you under inside of a pagan nation. He will do all kinds of things for your glory, for his glory and your sanctification and your holiness and your growth and your good. And you'll say, I don't understand this. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why bad things are happening to me. If you don't understand this, this story. Listen. From this people group, this people group that's been throughout history known as sufferers. Has there ever been a people group? Has there ever been a nation that suffered more than the Jewish people? I don't think there has. And it's not a surprise that our Savior, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, was called a man of sorrows, that he suffered brutally. And scripture tells us that a servant is not any greater than a master. And that's what we are, servants of Christ. And we're no greater than he is. So we should expect some suffering on this planet. From this family of 70 comes millions. And from the millions comes one. The sinless son of God and the son of Mary. Jesus Christ, he is descended from Israel. He is born in a stable in a Roman occupied province under a crazy ruler who ordered the execution of all Jewish baby boys. Jesus was also like Israel incubated in obscurity. Jesus was born in abject poverty. He was predestined before the foundations of the world to be king of the universe, but came as a helpless baby to be raised in a poor Jewish family, working with his hands in the trade of his adoptive father, Joseph, as a carpenter. For 30 years, Jesus lived this inconspicuous and normal Jewish life. Then, by the time Jesus turns 30 years old, he begins the work to which he had been called. He began preaching the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel. And what kind of response does he get? Jesus 
steps into his earthly role, steps into his ministry. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. And what response does he get? His own people rejected him. They despised him. He was their Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the one promised in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the head of the serpent. He was the gospel. He was the good news. And how how did his people respond? They rejected him. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. They called him a friend of sinners. They called him a lawbreaker and a liar. And they created an illegal trial and had him executed by crucifixion. Crucifixion, the most painful way to die. So painful that that they had to invent a new word to describe it. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. It's the word means. There was no painful, hurtful, couldn't describe it. They had to invent excruciating. He was a man of sorrows. Now listen, is this how you would launch your project to save the world? Is this how you would launch your project to save the world? Drop a guy into Mount Joy. Give his, his daddy's a carpenter. Right? His mom's 17, 15, something around there. Teenage mom. They're in poverty. Is this how you would start a worldwide? Let's even just think in religion. Is this how you would start a worldwide religion? I doubt it. But God does. Let's learn here. This is the man. This is the promised one who came from the promised nation, who descended from the family of Israel. This is the one who would fix the world and make everything right. And nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. Even the disciples of Jesus, Jesus dies on the cross. And what does the disciples do? They gone. They were scattered. Jesus' own siblings. Jesus stood up and said, okay, here's the thing. If you've seen, God, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. <gasps> when, your big bro- when your big brother steps up and go, I'm God. Right? There's some issues there. All of his siblings are like, He's, he, he went crazy. Brother has went crazy. Right? His siblings called him crazy and thought he had lost his mind. See, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. There's this gospel that's being propagated today that says, if you come to Christ, everything will go well for you. Think good thoughts. Think happy thoughts. God doesn't want you to think negative thoughts. God wants you to think happy thoughts. I'm I'm constantly reminded. Every time I hear this gospel being preached, all I can hear is Stuart Smalley in Saturday Night Live. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. That is not the gospel. That's that's a man-made religion. Listen to this. But as Jesus hung on the cross, as he said, it is finished, everyone thought, everyone misinterpreted what he said. It is finished. All the disciples, the ones that are hiding off in the crowd, the ones who are looking from a distance, the ones who are, who are afraid to be associated with him any longer. They're looking, it is finished, it's over. He was a joke. What we thought was going to happen, the Savior of all the world, it didn't happen. He died, he was a fake, he was a phony. As the Roman guards killed him, they thought the same thing. <laughs> Until he dies, and there's an earthquake, and the temple curtain is torn in two. And then three days later, he's resurrected. See, everyone thought he's dead, he's gone, he's out of the way, that liar is finished. On to the next one. But then, three days later in that tomb, that nail-scarred hand twitched for the first time. And Jesus rose triumphantly in victory over death itself, accomplishing for salvation for God's people and instituting the beginning of God's new creation. See, his work, God's work of recreating the whole world once again to a state of sinless perfection. Jesus started that again at his resurrection. He accomplished it. He instituted it. He began it. 
And listen, we know this was not like easy to believe. This was so hard to believe that what does Jesus do? We see in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, that Jesus then shows up, the resurrected Jesus, post-resurrection shows up to over 400 people. Including, (laughs) rightly so, his own brother James. I, I would love that one. Right? James thought he was crazy for calling himself God. Jesus knocks on James's door. Hey, bro, what up? Right? Yeah, you saw me die. You saw me. Die. You want to look at my right here? Freaking out his own brother, right? And what does James do? Now, this is, this is actually a, a strong apologetic for the Christian faith. Because James, who once called Jesus an imposter, once thought he was crazy and out of his mind... James becomes, after the resurrected Jesus shows up to him, James becomes a devoted Christian. He becomes the leader of the Jewish church and would eventually be executed by stoning for refusing to deny that Jesus was the Son of God, proved by his resurrection. Right? It takes a lot to convince your brother you're God. I've been trying for a long time. <laughs> it takes a lot, but Jesus did it. So what now? Can I ask you what now? What happened to Israel? Are they still the people of God, his special chosen people of his own possession? Is it all ethnic Jewish people or ethnic Israel that's included in God's sovereign plan to renew all the world? Listen to what the Jewish Christian, the Apostle Paul, says in Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Circumcision was this outward sign of the covenant, the sign of the people of Israel. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is now a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul goes on to clarify in the book of Romans that faith was the real distinguishing characteristic of God's family. That everyone, Jew or Gentile, Jew or not, could be adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus. Now, people get wigged out when I say that people believed in Jesus in the Old Testament. I said last week that Jacob and his family, they all worship Jesus. People go, Jesus isn't born yet. He's in the Old Hey, listen, Jesus is eternal God. Eternal God. Now, They didn't know his name was going to be Jesus. They knew he was going to be the Messiah that Genesis 3.15 prophesied. And all the prophets testified to this fact. They all knew the coming Messiah was coming. They didn't know his name. We now have history on our side and can say that coming Messiah, that promised deliverer was Jesus. Now listen, why, why do we need to know this story, Justin? Why can't we just know that God wants to save us from our sins? It's said that every single human being builds their life on the foundation of some story. Right now, you're building your life on the foundation of some story. You've got a past that kind of sometimes people can think, uh, because of my past, I'm going to become a certain type of people. So therefore, your past of your story is going to determine your future. Some people just have a... We like to call it a telos. It's an end goal. It's a dream or it's a vision that I'm shooting for that. And that's, that, is, that goal is going to create for you a story. See, there's a predominant view that's around today called secularism. Okay, secularism is just that nothing created everything for no reason. Secularism, nothing created everything for no reason. And why would that story be popular today? Why would that story be beneficial? Why would people really want to believe that everything came from nothing and it exists for no reason at all? Because like Adam in the book of Genesis, we want to be our own God. We want to say what morality is. We want to determine for ourselves what is good, what is right, and what is perfect. And out of this story of secularism, see, this, the way of understanding the world that has no purpose in life, therefore every single person is now free to make up their own purpose. You can make up your own morality. You can even make up your own sexuality. You want to be a boy? You want to be a girl? You want to be something in between? You can do it. That's 
coming from this foundation of secularism. Doesn't see a personal God creating men and women in his own image. That God created the sandcastle and he gets to say this is what it's supposed to look like. See, secularism, when out of nothing comes everything for no purpose, we become God and the arbiter of all morality. We get to say who can be married. We get to say what marriage is. We get to say what's right and what's wrong. Why? Because we are now God. This is one of the predominant worldviews in our culture today. It's being taught in public schools, state colleges, universities, and dominates our entertainment. And listen, here's what's coming, guys. If you're a Christian in this room, if you don't believe that, if you don't hold to those secularistic values, you will be called a bigot. You are a hate monger and a bigot if you believe otherwise. Not very tolerant in their tolerance. But listen, I believe our story The story of our faith, the story that the Bible tells of human existence, of the telos of where the world is going. I believe this story to be true, yes, but not just true, beautiful, (laughs) better. We're created by a purposeful God who loved us into existence and we're, we're created for love. And yes, we've got some difficulty and yes, we've got some suffering, but God has redeemed us. And now we're headed for this end goal where God is recreating the whole world out of his love. I believe it to be far more beautiful and far more glorious to think we didn't just come out of nothing. But God is at work in history. He's at work in our story. He's at work in our lives, in the pain, in the confusion, in the stuff that we don't understand. God is in it and he gives purpose to suffering. He gives perfect purpose to our difficulty. We see that through the nation of Israel. He's God. He's in control. He's sovereign. Yes, his ways are not my ways, nor his ways my thoughts, nor his thoughts my thoughts. But if, people, if we could see as God sees, we would understand why we need to do as God does or tells us to do. Listen, here it is. If God is good, which scripture says he is, that means he's all loving. God is love. And he is great. That means he's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Nobody has rights to him. Nobody can pin him against the wall and make him do something. God can do whatever he wants. If he's good, he's all loving and he's great. He's all powerful. Then everything he does, everything he does is out of love and therefore is for our good. It is for God's glory and our good. Even your cancer. Even your suffering, even your rebellious children, even your difficult marriage, no matter what you're going through, a sovereign God is in control and it is for your good. Now, I get it. Well, I don't like that. Well, I disagree with that. If I was God, I would. Now, let's just stop. Can you admit the slight possibility there, there might be unforeseen circumstances that you don't know about. Actually, I could back that up and just go, are you all knowing? Are there things you don't know? Okay, then you would suck at God. Sorry, right? Let's just say that. But we have this limited knowledge. We have this limited knowledge determined by our culture and our upbringing and our experience. And that we think we get frustrated because God doesn't do things the way we want him to do things. But God is all knowing. That means he knows every circumstance that you're not aware of. So when he acts, there is great reason and great purpose to believe that everything God does is the only way God could do it. Because he has a bajillion, that's a, I think that's a real number. He has a bajillion circumstances in view. Every person on the planet in view when he's planning and purposing. Now listen, if you can admit that, if you can admit you're not all-knowing, if you can admit that there might be some unforeseen circumstances that you haven't taken into account when you're making decisions, if you can admit that, then it frees you up. To see that he might know things that you don't know. And therefore his actions are actually the best for you. 
right? My child, when, I, when she wants her sixth sucker from Nini, right? When she wants that sixth sucker and I say no, right? Her whole world says, I am mean. I am a tyrant. I am withholding good things from her. That's her whole world, right? But I know things that she doesn't know. Now, I know that her teeth are going to rot out of her head for one, right? And listen, a toothless teenager is not a pretty teenager, okay? <laughs> Honey, I'm doing this for your good, right? Adolescence is bad enough. We need some teeth during that adolescence, right? I have some things in mind that she doesn't understand and she doesn't know about. But that doesn't change the way she feels. It doesn't change the way she reacts. That's why the... <laughs> I say this to my daughter every, nearly every day. Hey, honey, your feelings, I'm sorry. Because her thing, ah, you hurt my feelings. I'm sorry. I will hurt your feelings, but I love you. Now, that's just me. I'm just a dad. I'm just an adult. I, it said, my 30-year-old self, 34 actually, 34-year-old self, I look back at my 15-year-old self and I think, oh man, what was I doing? What was I thinking? That's just 20 years. Imagine a, an omnipotent God who has existed from all eternity. He knows far more than us. He's aware of far more than we're aware of. How much more? Me looking at my daughter, my daughter is not understanding me. How much more do we not understand him? But thanks be to God, we have the scriptures that tell us he's good and that he's loving and all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen. C.S. Lewis has once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I'm going to say it again because it's kind of confusing. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not just because I can see it, but because by it, by the sun's light, I can see everything else. This is Christianity. This is our faith. This is our story. Not just that we get to see God and we get to understand God and we get to see God in the form of Jesus, but because our worldview shapes our society, shapes the way that we live. Through the Christian worldview, you can see the rest of the world. It makes sense. Secularism doesn't make sense. You get to say what's right, and people say this, well, that's true for you and not true for me. What? True for, what? Well, you can have your own truth. How about this? Is that true for you? Was that wrong? Why was that wrong? That's true for me. I'm going to take your wallet too. That's true for me. It doesn't make sense. Secularism doesn't make sense. We can kill a baby in the womb and call it abortion. But then when, a, when a, somebody gets in a car accident and that baby dies in the womb, we call it murder. What? So that mother, the mother has the right to say something is either murder or not? Secularism. Foolishness. It doesn't make sense. Logically, it doesn't even make sense. Is the baby a baby or is the baby not a baby? How can it, it be both? doesn't make sense. Christianity takes the world and it makes sense. And it's beautiful. We all know the world as we know it is jacked up. It needs redemption. But Christianity says a redeemer has come and he's placed in seed form. This thing he calls the kingdom. And this kingdom is growing right now as we speak. Right now you're, you're, test, you're testifying to it. You're a part of that kingdom. That kind of... Um, incubated people like they were sent in this pagan nation. You're a part of that right now. You're a part of it. And one day Christ will come and the whole world will testify of his glory and everything will be renewed and everything will be remade. And you get to be a part of that story by faith. That's the Christian worldview. Brilliant. It's beautiful. It's bigger than what you're living for. What are you living for? A Ferrari in the driveway? Is that what you're living for? Minuscule could be taken away in a moment. What are you living for? Live for God. Live for his purpose. Live for his telos. That's going to recreate the whole world. We celebrate that story today as we come to the Lord's table. And we break the body of bread. That's the 
body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us and we taste of the wine or the grape juice that was spilled for our sins. We, we are a people shaped by story. We are people who are living in a narrative. We get to play a little part. Brilliant. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the work you've done to redeem us. The work you've done to call a people out of darkness. That it is not our choice that saves us. It is your choice that saves us. It is your work that saves us. Father, I ask that you would take the dead, the spiritually dead that are in this room, and you would make them alive. You would give them faith to believe, and they would embrace this story that makes sense of the world. The story of how you are redeeming all things for your own glory and for our good. Father, we turn from our sin. We turn from our minuscule ways of seeing the world. We turn from our quest to be God and to determine what morality is. We turn from those. We turn to you. You are God of God, Lord of Lords. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.